Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 55th episode of the Truth Island podcast. When we think of the right education, many of us no longer think of the word privilege, but rather education as being a basic human right. Long gone are the days which rich nobles and kings would hire private tutors to teach the future heirs to the throne, philosophy, religion, and just enough science to rule over the realm while the masses toil away in the fields. The birth of the industrial economy and now the information age has created a global need for highly skilled and literate workers that can learn on their own, develop unique thoughts, engage in critical thinking, and at an even more basic level, read and write. As the days of the illiterate peasant through the sheer strength of his muscles overcoming the hardships of poverty are beginning to become increasingly rare, the right to a good education has become just as important as access to clean drinking water. Yet somehow in the United States, the basic right is not afforded to everyone. Some of us get to attend well-funded and disciplined public and private schools that stress rigor, accountability, teach critical thinking at a high level, and instill the belief in their students that they too can become future rulers of this great nation. However, for a growing number of us living in the States, an educational feudalism has started to take root with the emergence of overcrowded schools where lawlessness and unruly behavior is the norm, content that is presented as simply a means to an end with regards to standardized testing, and little to no critical thinking being generated. In fact, it is not at all uncommon for many of America's high school graduates in some of our most impoverished communities to graduate high school and only be able to read at no higher than a third grade reading level, despite holding a diploma that suggests otherwise. As the inequality chasm rises in the country, the need to extract complex pieces of information from written text is going to become of ever increasing importance. As there is only so much we can learn from YouTube videos and what other people tell us to do. Many educational experts in the US claim that they have tried everything and retire on it is what it is type of mentality and that if we are simply more softer and permissive with our most disadvantaged students, the problem will eventually correct itself. But perhaps hope and answers simply lie north of the border to our brothers and sisters up in Canada. I am once again joined by Daniel, who was both a student and teacher in Canada, comes to the show to not only remind us that Canada can teach us a thing or two about healthcare, but education as well. Daniel, thanks so much for being on the show. I'm hoping this episode reaches enough people down here in the States before the last of our critical thinking is completely gone. Well, thank you for having me, Aaron. That's uh, quite, quite, a, quite an ominous way to get ourselves into things here. <laughs> I guess it's a little indicative of how you're feeling generally, both as a student and a teacher, about what happened down there. <laughs> Daniel, please sh shine a ray of light on us because uh, uh, down here below below you guys, we really need to see some light. So um, I think I should maybe remind the listeners that Canada is a very, very large country and it spans you know, from the West Coast all the way to the East Coast. And just like there are lots of similarities between uh, the different sections of the United States, the same is very much true in Canada, albeit much, much smaller proportionally in terms of population. We have a West Coast culture. We have an East Coast um, culture. We have a Central Canada prairies kind of culture. And we have the uh, French culture with our neighbors in Quebec. And then in Ontario, there's lots of different sections within Ontario too. Um, I am based in the Toronto and the greater Toronto area. So when I'm speaking, I want everyone to be mindful of the fact that I'm actually talking about a very narrow slice of uh, Canadian education and Canadian life and upbringing. So that's kind of my first big disclaimer that I am, you know, we are going to be making some pretty, pretty big claims about education and the state of it and how we approach it here with air quotes in Canada. But bear in mind that within each province, it's very different from each other because education is a provincial mandate, not a federal mandate. 
And then also within each area, there's different boards or districts, I think might be a more familiar term. So what the Toronto District School Board does, it could be very, very different than what the Hamilton District School Board does. And they're, you know, an hour and a half drives away from each other or two hours. So bearing all that in mind. And the same yes. thing, yeah, just and the same thing mm. with the U.S., when I speak about my experiences, I'll be speaking from like a New York City perspective. And mm. for all I know, things are done radically different in Connecticut or yes. I mean, from what I've heard, things are done pretty similarly in major cities, cities but you're right. You know, even mm. in the States, we, we are only speaking about a certain jurisdiction. Yeah. But I think for our purposes, it's pretty interesting to go with New York City and Toronto. I think if we're going to go with an analog, I think that's a pretty good you know comparison to make because we have one of the biggest, if not the biggest city in the States with one of the biggest, if not the biggest city in Canada. So it, it kind of works, but I do want that to kind of be clear because even though I'm talking about Toronto, I grew up in a suburb of Toronto, just kind of west of, uh, of there. And so the school system there is going to be different than than in the downtown core, right? But I guess um, I've been invited to talk about my experience as a student and then my experience maybe as a teacher too. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I'll start with, you know, my elementary years. I actually started in a Montessori school. I'm not sure if you or your listeners are familiar with the idea of Montessori, but it's basically play-based um, child-centered education mm. where, um, you know, social activities and tasks where you're having fun and you're playing, but you're still stimulated and challenged. That's kind of what the idea of Montessori was very much play based learning. So I did that for about two years. Is there um, um, just a question? Is mm -hmm. there like a curriculum with that? Or like, is there like, are there certain like general concepts? Like, obviously, the teachers, even though you're playing, the teachers still have mm -hmm. to kind of make sure that you can read at a proficient level, right? Yeah. So I can give you an example of an activity that I remember very clearly i don't know if fondly but we have these little wooden boards that have activities on them activity is kind of the hot word in montessori and it was a shoelace that was tied to look like a shoe but it's on a board that you can kind of hold in front of you so you can practice tying a shoelace over and over again and we would have a bunch of those boards a bunch of those activities lined up along the table and you know maybe you'll tie shoes here maybe you'll push a bunch of buttons or solve a little wood sliding puzzle here maybe you'll roll balls around in a maze here and that was very much what it was and it was child-centered in the fact that i as a student could go around and choose what i did um, is there a curriculum for it i don't want to get too deep into the you know education history of montessori but uh, montessori is actually an untrademarked non-copyrighted um, IP. It's its founder, um, who was a woman named Montessori. Her first name has escaped me, but she didn't <laughs> she didn't trademark it. So basically any 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 person can open up a school and call it a Montessori school. So is there a curriculum? There's an underlying philosophy. There are principles that guide it, but is there a, a hard bound textbook that is the Montessori curriculum? No. So like a lot of other teaching philosophies, it's kind of dependent on how the pedagogue or the teacher uses it. Yeah, yeah, so. we do not to get too much into this, but we do have like some schools that run under the Montessori model. Some mm. are freaking amazing and yes. others are not so great. I think critics the, the biggest criticism I usually hear about Montessori schools, I, I know very little of them since I never attended one or taught in one, is that sometimes students could leave with gaps in knowledge just yes. because because yeah. they're too they're a little too free to pursue what it is that they want that, oh, wait a minute, I, I didn't get all the presidents down or something like mm -hmm. that. Yeah, and I think <laughs> that that's a... Um very reflective of the general tension between child-centered learning and teacher-centered learning that recently in recent years everybody's been rah 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 child-centered you know follow the kids <laughs> passions and interests so that they'll stay engaged true but what if tommy is only engaged in i don't know wanting to play video games and like yes you can design a whole curriculum about video games but at some point he's yeah. got to do his multiplication times tables yes. at some point he's got to be able to do a spelling test so i think montessori was really great for the child-centered aspect of it but you're right it is very easy for it to get so child-centered that they don't learn some very fundamental basic skills. Yeah. You but seem again, to have yeah. turned out great. So <laughs> well, thank you. Well, I was only there for two years. I could have stayed there for longer. Um, but I actually went to a private school for um, grades three to eight. 
I went to a, a private school that was actually flavored like Montessori, but it was based on um, the teachings of Friedrich Froebel. So Friedrich Froebel is the founder of the kindergarten. Um, I, I, a lot of people don't realize this, but kindergarten is actually the, the German term for garden of children. Ah. And his, his idea was that you shouldn't treat um, a classroom uh, of kids like they're on a factory line and that, you know, they all fit into this certain mold. You have to treat them like a garden. Some are going to sprout very quickly. Some are going to take a little bit longer to bloom. Some are going to be very, very colorful here. And some are going to be more hardy and sturdy like a vegetable. So you have to treat your class like their uh, garden. And you have to tend to each one individually depending on their needs. That's beautiful. And it's always hmm. sounded like a German word, like Kindergarten. Kindergarten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear I hear that word. And I, I there's a movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I, I remember yeah. him saying that, and it does sound like a very German word. And the, yeah, but it's kind of a, a it's fantastic a very, movie. <laughs> it's a very beautiful um it's a beautiful <laughs> phrase though. It is. I would love to see a movie of Arnold Schwarzenegger as Friedrich Froebel. That would be that would be amazing. <laughs> uh, but, but I think I think it's called Kindergarten Cop. He actually plays a kindergarten. Oh, yeah, that, that, <laughs> that's what's making it click for me, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I grew, I grew up in, in this private elementary school that was very much about play. It was very much about nature. That was kind of a big thing that we were really outside a lot. And it was also very little homework. They actually were very much, now they weren't against homework, but they really didn't introduce the idea of bringing work home with you until maybe grade six, grade wow. five. Yeah, it was pretty late. And some other things were, uh, yes, um, cross-age social interactions. They really made an effort to have different grades interact with different grades. So if you're in grade eight, you're going to have a reading buddy in grade one. If you're in grade two, you're going to do a partner science project with some grade sevens. And they also had school-wide activities where they mixed everybody up, kind of like houses, um, you know, like the Harry Potter houses, where regardless of your year, you belong to a house or a mm. group, as we call them. And that fostered activities where we would interact with each other. So, and that's kind of yeah. beautiful in a way, because I like that we're taking older kids and having them kind of serve as a like a teacher almost because mm -hmm. it teaches them responsibility and they have to probably be a little bit more mindful with their behavior the language that they use just because there's somebody younger and i, I think one of the best ways to co-opt anyone into any system is to give them some degree of authority because yeah. once you give yeah. somebody a degree of authority now they're brought into the system yeah and they they can they can value it and perceive it in a different way than they yeah. otherwise wouldn't have had to so i guess before i go into how you know amazing and great my elementary years were i need to stress that this was a private school and at that this was a private alternative school okay. so this was not your typical private school in canada or, or ontario and it definitely wasn't your typical public school so unfortunately i'm I don't have much to draw on to talk about the elementary years. Um, I really did like that style of schooling and we can talk about the advantages and the disadvantages of having such a small community that's based like that. By the way, each class or each grade was about eight to 10 kids. And wow. so it was very, very small. Yeah. And it wasn't because, you know, we're paying lots and lots of money. It's just the school building itself was very, very small. Um, and, you know, the number of staff was small too. So again, that comes with a whole lot of advantages. It comes with a Quite a few disadvantages too. So bearing that all in mind, then I went to a two Catholic high schools when I was in my high school years. So for grade nine and 10, uh, I was in an IB program, international baccalaureate program, or the pre-IB program, I should really correct myself. Uh, and then when I got to the end of grade 10, uh, they said I had to pick an elective and music was not one of the electives that I could choose. And so I thought, well, I'm playing violin, you know, every day I'm playing uh, trumpet and saxophone and concert bands and jazz bands. Like I, I need music. Like I can't not do music. So I eventually switched and I went to a different public Catholic high school. So I can definitely talk about the public school um, experience from a high school perspective. And, um, and just interesting, to, just to clarify, yeah. yeah, just to clarify for our listeners, when a lot of Americans hear the word Catholic school, they automatically assume it's a private school. Mm -hmm. And in Canada, you can have Catholic schools that you don't pay for, and they're they are a part of the public system. Yes, and that, that's in that's actually more specific even to Ontario, to a certain province. I believe there's another province, but 
that does it too, but it's been mostly phased out. It's actually, the United Nations actually declared the practice um, discriminatory because you're privileging one religion over others. And there's a whole history for why the Ontario school system still has Catholic and non-Catholic public systems. There's a whole, it's a whole rabbit hole that we can go down if we want, but I think maybe for our purposes, that's kind of my snapshot, right? That I was in private schools, well, I did Montessori for two years briefly, and then I was in a private elementary school. And then I went to two different public Catholic schools when I was older. And then after that, I did my uh, an, an undergraduate in music education. And then I went to Shanghai for two years. And then I did <laughs> came back to Toronto, got my teacher certification. And then now I'm teaching as a music teacher. Yeah, let's zoom into your high school years because you were mm-hmm. in a public school. So... Um, to talk about that, you know, and I hate to even uh, split hairs even further, but because I was in the pre-IB program in grade nine and 10, that itself was an advanced or an enhanced or an exclusive program that, yes, it was available to the public, but in order to get into that, you had to write um, a standardized test to get in. So that was kind of, you know, cream of the academic crop in my first two years. And the next year I went to a more you know, general program that had a really nice music program, but it wasn't a specialized school in grade 11 and 12. And so if I'm going to talk about grade nine and 10, I'm definitely going to be talking about how there was this definite divide between the IB kids and the non-IB kids now. And so it's interesting to hear that, yes, there, this is all within the public system, but even still that feudalism you're talking about exists there too. Mm. That if you can manage to get your child into this program, they'll be more likely to get into their first choice university, which means they'll be more likely to get that high value job that they're going after. The IB program was really geared towards uh, medicine students and engineering students. Law school, they said, but really the only choices I was allowed to pick were math, science, 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 English, (laughs) and then maybe one other one, economics or another history or something. There really wasn't a big choice. Bearing in mind, we had to do religion. One question I want to ask, um, you said there was an exam uh, to get accepted into this program. Mm -hmm. Is that something your parents helped you with? Was that just a book you could get from the library and study for? Or did you have to take classes to prepare for that? Well, that's really interesting because it's similar to how you would prepare for the standardized tests to get into university in the States, right? Um, So the intention of this SSAT, I believe it's the secondary school assessment test. You're actually not supposed to study for it. You're just supposed to walk in and do it. And if you do well, yes, you're ready for an advanced program. But that's definitely not in practice how it turns out that we have students who are being drilled and they practice and they study so, so hard when they're in the eighth grade so that they can perform well on this high pressure test that's supposed to be a measure of natural ability. And that's what gets you into this high value program, which will supposedly get you into a high value secondary program, which will get into a high value job. So you know, I, I think maybe I'm discoloring the rosy picture that maybe Canada has in its public education system, because that definitely exists, both for IB and for the advanced placement situation. But in grade 11 and 12, when I was in this more regular quote unquote program, yeah, I don't really even know where, where to start with it. I had a really positive experience. I, I did notice things that were different from my experience of being with very advanced students to being with average students and I have lots Mm. of little stories here and there. So, you know, Daniel, I think it's really interesting that towards the end of your high school career, you know, you were with these really advanced high track students, but then there were also uh, regular students. And even when that was the case, there was some way that the the, the regular track student was not being disruptive, or there was some, there was some way that both of these uh, students could kind of coexist in the same classroom and still get what they needed. And I'm wondering, did the teacher in the classroom ever like assign like the really high functioning kid to work with the regular track kid and maybe like tutor it's sort of like, you know, the brother that can feed the other brother does so mm-hmm. sort of mentality? Or did the did the high track kids just like create their own little enclave in the back in, in the front of the classroom or something? Yeah. I think this would be a really good point to maybe draw some administrative logistical comparisons between your high school classes and the Ontario high school classes. Because in Ontario, from what I remember, is that there were streams. It was a streamed secondary school program. So there was academic. That was kind of the top level one. The academic classes are your biology, your calculus, your um, academic English. This is for students going to university. So this is the highest um, kind of category. Then there was college. 
So college C classes, college English or um, family life or college level history classes, they were all, I really don't want to say dumbed down, but they were simplified and they were streamlined and the expectations were not as high. The academic rigor wasn't there for these college programs because it's meant for students who are going into trades, uh, who are going, maybe using their hands, like the carpentry class, for example, was college or the botany class was college. Mm. And then you have mixed classes, M classes. And these mixed classes were eligible for university, but also college students could come in and take them. So in these mixed classes, I took a psychology class, so psychology, anthropology, um, and sociology that class was mixed. So you have some students who are geared towards university being there and some who are not. Now I have a question. The kids that are on the college track, and it's weird for me to say that because college and university in the States are one in the same, but Mm. let's, let's just use the word vocational track, right? So the kids that are on the vocational track, if they were on that track, was there any hope of them ever going to university or was it like, that's it, your cards have been dealt and you'll never, you'll never step foot in a university. Yes. How does that work? So that's, that's one of the big issues that the public school system is facing um, in Ontario um, that basically in grade nine, if you don't do well on your English and your math, your teachers or your guidance counselor will heavily recommend that you don't go into the university stream. That, that you should take this vocational stream that, okay, well, you really didn't do well on your standardized math test. You really didn't do well on your standardized English test. University probably isn't for you. So you should probably head towards the trades or the vocations or something else. Mm. And so that those cards get dealt to you in pretty much grade nine and grade 10. Um, it's very, very difficult for someone who did uh, college level English to transition into university 12 English and then apply to university. That's very difficult to do. And it often doesn't happen. Um, Same thing with math. So that's something that, you know, it's got a dark spot. There's definitely problems with it. But at the same time, you're avoiding this other problem where you have a class of all different ability levels and the really, really high advanced kids feel like they're being dragged down or the really low performing or low achieving students feel like they're being rushed forward. Yes. And so there's no perfect solution to this, but that's at least how it's being handled right now in Ontario. And the teacher just has to teach to the middle, basically. I mean, and, yeah. and hope, yeah. you know, hope, hope that the upper kids look down a little bit and the uh, kids that are struggling somehow climb the mountain just yeah. so much higher. One final question on this issue. If you have the vocate, like if you are on the vocational track and you get a vocational high school diploma, will a university even look at that? Or do you have to then go back and take more high school mm-hmm. classes? Like, do you, can you even get your foot in the door or is that it? So the diploma is the same regardless. Okay. Like you, you all, we all walk out with a high school diploma, but it's the credits that really matter. Hmm. In order to apply to a science program at say Western University, you need to have X number of science credits, X number of English credits. And if those credits are not U level, if they're not university level, it'll either not let you apply at all, or you're going to be very disadvantaged in the selection process. So there's no second chances. In a term, if you take a victory lap, which, you know, basically a grade 13, you can, you know, do all of your university level credits that way. That's possible too. And that does happen, but at the same time, if you've been struggling up until grade 12 to perform at a university level, chances are you're going to struggle in that 13th year too. So it's, yeah, it's kind of tough. It's, it's hard to say which is really, you know, the lesser of the two evils when it comes to that. Okay. No, I, I'm going to touch upon that when I tell my story, but yeah, mm-hmm. go ahead. Continue. Yeah. Because I'm curious to, maybe we can do it later. I yeah, wanna, yeah. Yeah. I want to sure. see what, what the, how the New York answer um, is the New yeah. York, the New York answer to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I did, I did that. And then um, I finished my university undergraduate and then, yeah, I became, I basically followed the path to be a teacher. And so now I'm a teacher and I have lots of um, nuanced, complex opinions on all of these little things, but I don't want to necessarily take the conversation in the wrong direction. But that's essentially my story. It was Montessori for a year or two, and then private elementary up until grade eight, and then an advanced public program in nine ten, and then a regular program in eleven twelve university undergrad, and then now teacher. Could you maybe describe a little bit of the uh, educational setting that you're working in right now? Yes. So I was trying very, very hard to get into the public system. I really wanted to be a a public school music teacher. Um, But with COVID-19 happening, all of the public systems are 
well, at least back when I was applying for my jobs, they were really, really lagging. So they're, they're typically slow already. And that's to be expected of a government institution, yes. or at least, you know, an offshoot of a government institution, the public option is slower, because there's just more people in it, and there's more to do. And it's affected a lot more heavily by a pandemic, for example. So while I was applying and doing interviews for the public systems, I was also doing interviews and applications for the private system too. Because I grew up in the private system, I didn't necessarily look down on it. I wasn't afraid of it. I didn't think it was the evil that's going to destroy edu the education system in Canada. I was open to it. So I did both. I weighed both my options. And when it came around to who got back to me, um, I found this really, really awesome opportunity to teach music at a private school. And I took it and I love and I really love it. It's very, very small. It's actually very similar to the school that I grew up in. And yeah, I'm really enjoying it. And I, and I do recognize and I do appreciate the privilege that I work with, that it's a small school with supportive parents who are financially stable. And that makes a huge difference because mm. I did placements. I did student teaching placements at all types of schools around the city. So I've seen the different kind of statuses that different public schools have. So would I want to eventually go back into the public system? Yes, I would. Um, but I've got a really, really good thing going for me right now. I, what, I, what I tell myself to help me feel better is that I still volunteer with um, a music school that teaches only underprivileged students um, who otherwise wouldn't have access to music education. I, I do that. I volunteer for them. So that's kind of what I do to, to quell my own, um, <laughs> what's the word? It's not like selfishness or greediness. Survivor's just, guilt. Yeah, maybe that's what it is, survivor's <laughs> guilt. Because in teacher's college in Ontario, it's understood that you're going to be a public school teacher. And there's almost this, there's almost this um, evil associated with the private school system. That, mm. You know, if you're going to be a teacher, you just care about money. You don't care about kids or teaching or education. You just want that paycheck and you want to be teaching rich kids, right? And maybe I interpreted that, but I definitely felt that when I was when I was in teacher's college. That's funny. That's funny. Actually, mm. private school teachers in the States make less than the public school teachers. And you know what? I... That is that is also true in Ontario as well. Huh. It's also true in Ontario. So there's almost this like misunderstanding about private school teachers. But I actually have a whole explanation for that too. But maybe I'll, I'll we'll get into that later. Okay. Uh, down f up for my story? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, let's, let's do it. Okay. Um, so I grew up in Queens, New York, and... I have to say that for the most part, my elementary school education was pretty rock solid. Um, I went, mm. no, I, my entire life, I attended nothing but public schools, all, all from K to 12. And the thing that really stuck with me about my elementary school um, education is that we really had rock solid teachers. Um, and we had a pretty ironclad, no nonsense principle. And, and it's, it's very, it's very interesting that you kind of have this like praise for Montessori in many ways, my elementary school was like the opposite of Montessori mm -hmm. in the sense that it was very regimented, very disciplined. And as a kid, we all hate discipline, right? We all hate the scary principal. And it's like, Oh, you're going to the principal's office, but in a way it kind of actually kept us in line in, in, and, and when I tell my middle school and high school experiences, it'll make a lot more sense. So I went to a very, very, very traditional and like maybe middle class elementary school. The teacher, this was the kind of school where the teachers had been working there. Like each teacher had spent, you could really enter this school and basically retire. Like the teachers mm -hmm. would not leave. Yeah. Like they loved their job so much that they would spend like 20 years there. And it was, it was very orderly. Like kids did not shout out, kids raised their hand. Uh, we would line up to go to lunch. And, you know, there was very little cursing, very little fights. And it's really amazing when you think about a New York City public school mm -hmm. that this was such the case. And there was actually what you just described. There was a program called uh, Talented and Gifted. And that was mm -hmm. um, sort of an advanced track program for kids that uh, really pushed themselves or had parents that pushed them. Back then, I was a knucklehead. So I was not a part of any of that stuff. I was like the gen ed kid, as you would call it. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I had moments. I had subjects that I really shined in and really sparkled in. And, and there were things that I just kind of slacked off on. Mm -hmm. But I would say that... Looking back, elementary school 
is really the most important school that you will ever attend. Because if it, if it wasn't, and, and I, I look at other people who have had very different outcomes to that of myself, and it's like elementary school taught me how to read. It, they really did. The elementary yeah. school I went to really stressed books. Um, at the end of the year, we had a chart. And every time you would read a book, you would put a sticker on this chart. And if you read 25 books by the end of the year, you would actually get a pizza party. Yeah, like, yeah, you, you yeah. know, and, and this and this was really, and I don't know how often that happens. We were also stressed to learn the multiplication tables, and in a lot of schools today, they're just doing away with that. And mm-hmm. again, people, some again, some people will be like, "Oh, that's just rigid thinking or whatever." But when you get to factoring and you get to higher forms of math, being able to know that twelve times twelve is one forty-four really helps. You know, when you're mm-hmm. looking at perfect squares and stuff. So I, I I really did enjoy my elementary school years for the most part. Uh, there were some problems, but for the most most part, I'm very proud of it. Things took a pretty downward spiral once I hit middle school. And when I hit middle school, we, we, we had students coming from all over Queens. And it really just became an absolute shit show at this point. Yeah. The, you know, the teachers that worked at this school, and again, I unfortunately was a knucklehead. So I ended up in, in my zoned middle school. I didn't, I didn't apply to any special middle schools or anything like that. Um, funny you should mention that you took a special test. In New York City, um, there are specialized middle schools and high schools that you can go to. Uh, we have co- uh, high schools known as Stuyvesant and Bronx Science and and towns in Harris. And if you take an exam, you can get into one of these high schools and you can have a completely different experience. You have a completely, are, yeah, go ahead. Are, are, the, are, there, are those standardized exams or is it particular to the school? It, they are standardized. It's a standardized test. Again, mm. I knucklehead here. Didn't, didn't, didn't take any of those exams. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my mind was totally in the wrong place, but yes, there is a standardized test and pretty much the higher you score on it, the uh, the more you know the more likely you are to be invited to attend one of those schools and some people think of it as a backdoor IQ test but there is a lot of test prep culture that goes on in New York yeah. City and if you've got fairly either affluent parents or parents that are in the know you know in the in the know and know they will push their kids to study for these exams so their kids can you can you pretty much if you attend one of these specialized high schools in new york you pretty much get a premier like ivy league almost education you're almost guaranteed if you get into one of these high schools you're pretty much guaranteed to almost get into like a a top 10 school Mm -hmm. so again there there is that option for like the few and far between but not for most. So back to me, knucklehead in a zoned middle school. It was absolutely chaotic, Daniel. And there were fights every day, kids just cutting class, um, disrespectful behavior. The desks were filled with graffiti. Um, Teachers did not last in this middle school for very long, you know, you, they would maybe do their two or three years. It was like pretty much like military service. They did their, they did their three or four years, got their discharge papers and yeah. went back to civilian life. <laughs> mm-hmm. And growing up in this, you know, I, you know, obviously when I was in elementary school, I took for granted the discipline. I took, took for granted the middle-class culture that was in that school that stressed discipline, rigor, reading books and all that good stuff. So when I got here, at first I appreciated the freedom but then, you know, when you've been in your fifth fight, you start mm. to be like, oh, my God, I, I, where are the adults? Where is the structure? Where are the rules? And I really kind of suffered the most. And, and there's a lot of gaps in my own education. Like, for example, after lunch on most days, I would just leave school. Like, I would have lunch, like, six period. And then I'd be like, well, math is a complete shit show. Uh, I'm just going to leave. And I would actually just tell the teacher, like, this class is a joke. I'm leaving. I would just mm-hmm. leave, leave middle, like, just leave school and go home and do something or whatever. And a part of it is me just being a knucklehead. But a part of it, I also believe, is no accountability and really no standards and, and no, no, no adults in my life to kind of push me in the right direction. Yeah. Do you think that was because they're just what was it? Was it a funding issue? Was it a leadership issue? Or do you, you know, I guess you were a kid, right? So you maybe you couldn't even tell, but oh, I mean, I, I could definitely answer that. I mean, hmm. in your in the, like, here's the thing. So in New York City, public school classrooms are up to like 34 kids, right? And we could say it's a funding issue when 34 kids in a classroom, that's a lot, which it, it is, is by lot. the way, I would, love to, I would love to see that number get down to like 20 or something. But here's the deal. 
the resources that were in the elementary school were about the same as the ones in the middle school, right? And, there, and in my elementary school, which I had a fairly decent experience, there was also 34 kids in a classroom. True. The difference yeah. comes down to, I think, a more permissive nature from leadership of, of like, like very low expectations. I, I think what mm-hmm. it came down to is... I wouldn't say it was the teachers that necessarily had low expectations, but the people above those teachers had very low expectations. They saw us as, I, I hate to say it, but I think that in some ways they saw us as working class dirt. And mm-hmm. and like when I went to my elementary school, even though some of us were working class, some of us were middle class, some of us were upper middle class, the teachers and the system just had an extremely high bar. Like it doesn't matter that you're brand new to this country. It doesn't matter if your parents Mm -hmm. are working class, we are going to teach you to read and we are going to make you perform at an extremely high level. And when I got to middle school, there was just an expectation that, oh, these kids are all working class dirt. Um, we'll just, you know, let's just keep passing them along. And then hopefully, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll get a job in the civil service, you know, collecting mm-hmm. trash or doing whatever. Yeah, because there, if I can jump in here, that when I was in teacher's college, one of the more surprising points of information that I learned from my special needs instructor and from my ESL instructor were both high expectations. You need to have high expectations for students who are learning English and who need extra support because yes, they're disadvantaged, true, but you need to make sure that you are expecting them to reach high milestones because if you don't do that, it will compound in the reverse order. They will collapse on themselves and feel that it's not worth it or they can't do it. And it's counterintuitive because you think, well, I'm going to give this kid a break because he needs it. No, you should actually do the opposite. You need to be pushing them from the ground up and supporting them. And unfortunately, parents who maybe aren't as informed as you know us, us educated teachers, they will do that for them. They'll, they'll cut them slack whenever they can. And that actually harms them more than it helps them. Yes, really, really well said, Daniel. I couldn't say it better myself, actually. And I think that's how those... Um, teachers and maybe some administrators viewed me. They saw me, oh, this is a working class kid. It's okay if he's cutting my class. I'm still going to pass him. And as a kid, you're elated. You're like, oh my goodness, I I don't have to go to math class and I'm still going to pass because you're thinking from the mind of a child and a child just wants to get away with as much as humanly possible. So they thought they were being generous and benevolent to me, but in actuality, they were kind of screwing me over because there's Mm -hmm. a lot of gaps that I have in my knowledge that I... I, I'm I'm done blaming people, but at mm-hmm. the same time, like there there they were hurdles that I had to overcome. I get to high school again. Still, I, I go to a very overcrowded high school. Over five thousand kids in my high school. Um, it's so overcrowded that the juniors and seniors start school at seven a.m. in the morning and get out of school at eleven thirty in the morning which is actually pretty awesome if you've got a part-time job. (laughs) I I kind of liked it. But the freshmen and sophomores started school at 1130, um, you know, like in the morning and then would go to school until like 530 at night because the school was so overcrowded. They couldn't have the freshmen and the seniors in the same building at the same time. The building would just explode if that ever happened. So that's that that I think is a a funding resource issue. So if I want to point if I want to put my finger at like lack of funding, something like that should be fixed via funding and building more schools. My high school is better than that of my middle school in the sense that there are something called honors classes. Again, total knucklehead here, you know, I find myself in a few honors classes in English and history. Those are just areas that I naturally excel at. And I actually get a pretty darn decent education when I find myself in an honors class. So is that analogous to the academic classes that I'm talking about or not quite? Okay, I'll get to that in a yeah. sec. I'll explain mm-hmm. how, how the high school diploma works in, in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have regular classes and you have honors classes and then you have AP classes where you can actually right. earn college credit while in high school. So when I find myself in an honors class, typically in history or English, I get a premium education. I'm learning Shakespeare. I'm with kids that are well-behaved and do their homework and we don't curse out a teacher and we respect teachers and we respect schoolwork in general. And I learned quite a bit. And that's something that did not exist in my middle school at all. However, in areas that I kind of struggle with like math, and maybe I skipped a few too many math classes back in middle school, it's a, it's again, a complete shit show where kids are cursing, yelling and fighting one another. And the teacher 
is just crying at his or her desk. And we didn't have like Monster and Indeed. They're, you know, they got the classified open and they're looking for a new job. And, and rightfully so. It's a yeah, complete yeah. shit show. No one yeah. wants to be there, students and teacher alike. And it's a, it's a really mixed bag. But what kind of happens is that my, ele- my good elementary school training kicks in. And I'm like, okay, there is a difference. I do know better. I do know how to read, right? Like, like the mm-hmm. fact that someone taught me to read before I entered, because there were kids that had nothing but a shit show from kindergarten up. I was at least fortunate enough to be in a good place in elementary school and that I knew how to read a book. So I realized that there's, you know, I stopped being a knucklehead, I think towards 11th grade. I start yeah. wising up. I change as a human being. I start doing, I start exercising. I start lifting weights and, and, and doing pushups. And that gets a lot of my teenage angst out of my system. Mm-hmm. And I begin taking school a lot more seriously. And at the last second, I was able to save myself and get decent enough grades to end up at a decent enough college. Now, to answer mm-hmm. your earlier point about how that works, one of the, one of the positive things and one of the maybe negative things about New York City is that we have a belief that everybody is going to college. And this is both a idealistic dream, but it's also a freaking nightmare because uh, what ends up Mm -hmm. happening is that you've got kids that really are just not academically inclined. And I don't want to get into this right now as to why that is, but they are being forced to, to, to apply for universities. They're being yeah. forced to, to study Shakespeare, uh, to study things that are way beyond their, their grasp. Same thing and, happens here a lot, yeah. Yeah, and they would just be better off, and there's nothing wrong with this, they would be better off learning how to be a plumber and earning a great salary. There's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with that. Um, but in New York City, we have no, we used to, but we no longer have any vocational training whatsoever. We expect everyone is going to become a college professor. And what ends up happening is a lot of people just get left behind and end up with nothing. Yeah. So I, I actually give credit to the Canadian system. And as, as much people are giving that flack for like, man, you're, you're preventing people from entering university. No, in a way you're taking care of your citizens who aren't going to be able to compete or think at that level and setting them up for success in the vocational sphere. Yeah, that's definitely the intention of it. And I think to a degree it, it does work. Um, it's just that, you know, there's of course a dark underbelly to it too, where, you know, someone has a crappy math teacher in grade eight, they don't do well in grade nine university is no longer accessible to them. But at the same time, you have far less, you know, students do what you're saying, where they push and push and push and push themselves to become a doctor, but they have to work so much harder than their classmates that they're just not going to make it, you know? And and it's not that they end up with nothing. They end up with a bunch of student debt and no job. That's kind of what's even worse, right? Luckily in, in Canada, generally speaking, and definitely in Ontario, college and university is secondary education is just much more affordable than it is, I think, in most of the states. Um, So, you know, it's not as bad, I guess, but it's still not the most ideal. One, one positive, this is something that's a pure positive. I'll give New York City credit. If you graduate on the margins from high school, let's just say you barely passed all of your classes. We do have a very strong community college system. Mm -hmm. And if you do your two years at community college, you can then get entrance into a university. So one thing that is positive about New York City is we do believe in second chances. So even if you're a crappy high school student and you get an associate, what we call a two-year degree or an associate's degree at a community college, four-year universities will take you and you can pick yourself up and fix your life. So mm-hmm. that is a positive. I don't know if Canada has a two-year system like that. Yeah. Like we had, like when, when I say college, um, I typically refer to either um, kind of like public option universities or trade schools, vocational schools. So yeah. that is definitely po- possible uh, on our side up here. But I kind of want to go back to uh, how disparaging the differences between somebody who goes from kindergarten to grade 12 not being able to read at a grade three level like to 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 me i would be extremely surprised if i met anybody in canada that was like that you know granted of course i had a very privileged upbringing but that seems way 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 too unacceptable by canadian standards and ontario standards like yes there are lots of students who struggle with reading for sure but to think that it's that extreme in new york city is like Whoa, because I've worked in a very rough 
very, very rough Toronto school in the downtown core. So I know, um, I have a flavor for what that's like. And the worst case kid can still read at a grade six level or grade eight level at least. And I would be appalled if someone graduated from high school, not being able to read like that. I, I, I'm glad that you touched upon that. And I think what it comes down to is what you originally said, Daniel, is that in New York City, there's a lot of people that First off, a lot of the teachers in New York City did not actually grow up in New York City. And this is a huge uh, uh, distinction that yeah. we're making here. I'm actually the exception. I'm mm -hmm. one of the rare people that actually grew up in New York City and actually taught in, in New York City. So what ends up happening is you have a lot of teachers that grew up in fairly affluent suburbs. Um, yes. So they grew up in wonderful suburbs. There is also a, a, a racial elements mm -hmm. as well most of them are white um and what ends up happening is they end up teaching in working class schools and they they kind of have this guilt or they have this um this idea of like oh my goodness these kids they they didn't have the same opportunities as me um they hmm. you know their parents are at home doing all sorts of crazy things i gotta just give these kids a break in life that's what they really yeah. need that's yeah. what they really yeah. need daniel is a break in life i gotta be so oh you didn't do your homework oh you got a a 10 on your math test it's okay i'm gonna pass you so you have a lot of administrators you have even some teachers to some degree the best teachers by the way, are teachers like me that, that, that grew up in New York City. And we know, we know the dealio. Yeah. We know, yeah, we know yeah. the dealio and we know what it takes to survive. And Sounds we, like a true New York statement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we know the dealio and we know what it takes to really pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I know that that's the most controversial term, but I'm mm. actually using it. And they think, you know, they, they kind of have a bleeding heart and they think that they're actually helping by having low standards. Like sometimes like when a kid is cursing at them or, or, or doing all this, oh, he, he doesn't know better. Yeah. And that's like a backhanded way of saying we're, we're, you know, they kind of, it's almost, there's, there is, they're not saying this, but there's almost a very latent assumption that we're less intelligent. Like mm -hmm. there, there's this yeah. latent assumption that we are more primitive, we are less intelligent, or we don't need to be held to a very high standard. Like we were yeah. raised by wolves. Like and that, Yeah, and that's where you belong, right? Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. There's this idea that we were raised by wolves and there's no way that we can ever pull ourselves out of this situation. So it's under the... Trojan horse of kindness and generosity yeah. and benevolence. But what it really is, is it's kind of a, a sort of class prejudice in a way for mm. working class kids. You know, obviously you can see me, I, you know, I look white to you. So if you mm. are in one of these schools, you are, because you're in, by virtue of being in the inner city or being in an urban school, you are just treated differently. You were treated as less capable. And I think that that is probably the most dangerous things. Like, did our school have the most updated textbooks? Did they have like the most advanced technology? Like there are schools out there, Daniel, in the suburbs that have swimming pools, okay? Like, mm -hmm, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's freaking, that, let me just tell you, that is freaking awesome to have a school that has a swimming pool. Uh, the only swimming pool that we had was probably like a leaking ceiling that yeah. went to a bucket. <laughs> yeah, or you have, a, you have a puddle for a splash pad. Or yeah, something. yeah, yeah, like, like a puddle. But it really wasn't any of those things. I think mm -hmm. what it is is, this low expectation. And I think the one thing that Canada has right that we can learn from is that you have discipline and you have really high expectations for working class kids. And if you do mm -hmm. that, you can, you, you, you know, you're not going to be able to help everybody and some people might get left behind, but you can really squeeze some greatness out of everybody. Yeah. I think it, I think it comes down to um, not necessarily high expectations, but there's a very high value for education in most of Canada that, especially immigrant parents of which Ontario is made up, you know, predominantly of now immigrant parents really, really, really value education. It doesn't matter how poor you are. It doesn't matter which country you come from, what your skin color is, what your religion is. Education matters and it's important. And that's what will push you out of whatever social class you're in. And I think there's a general understanding, at least throughout Ontario. I'm very hesitant to say it about all of Canada because there are farmers in central Canada who hate school and just want to work on the farm. There, there are, um, you know, high school students on the East coast who just want to fish with their dad and they don't care about education, you know, 
I'm, <laughs> I got to be careful here. I don't want to have all of Canada hate me right now with, with these <laughs> disgusting stereotypes that I'm saying. So I want to keep it localized to Ontario. But at least with my experience, both as a teacher and, and as a student, and just interacting with people, I think it's there's a lot of value placed on education and that's reflected in our government and it's inflect, reflected in our um, our politicians and our elected officials that um, we do have per capita one of the highest educated populations in the world. We have more people with bachelor's degrees per capita than almost any other country. Wow. And wow. That's, that's great. That's really good for a lot of reasons. You know, there's, again, I always bring about the dark underbelly of that, that there's not enough jobs for all those bachelor's degrees. <laughs> but at the same time, I think it's better to have an overeducated society rather than an undereducated society. And I think that's what we've got here. And that's part of the reason why so much money goes to schooling, even just money towards teacher salaries. Like I think the teacher salary divide is huge in the United States, like teachers working at poverty line level wages um, in certain parts of America. And that's just unimaginable in Canada. Like, you know, the teachers, they have to be doing better than poverty levels, you know? Yes. And so it, it, that's due to a lot of political and cultural and historical reasons, I'm sure. But I think that's the big one. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, there is this nasty stereotype about teachers that they're all like the B plus students of their university. <laughs> like if yes, you're, yeah. if you're really smart, you're going to work in tech or in banking mm -hmm. or something like that. So there is that. And, and maybe like in New York, like, I will say this, like in New York, the salary is not as high as I would have liked it to be, but it wasn't poverty wages. Like yeah. it was never, um, it was never the salary that made me hate teaching. It's probably all mm. the other reasons that I just mentioned that, yeah. that kind of left a sour taste in my mind. But going back to your earlier point, it's funny because the United States sees itself, like we advertise internally and probably externally as being a true meritocracy. We, we, we were like, oh, you come to, <laughs> you come to America yeah. and you work hard, you get educated and you will, you will make it. But, and, and, and that's our, pro that's maybe our propaganda or our advertising, but it's not really like that here because we do have like this invisible caste system in some way where it's like, oh, well, if you're from a working class background, we're going to have very, very soft, low expectations for what it is that you can achieve. Like, I, I think that if, if my, if some of my former teachers found out that I was like, in, first off, they probably don't even remember me, but like, it, it's, I've had, I've had friends, Daniel, that graduated from the same high school as me. And they actually went on to decent universities and then ended up in, in really good careers like banking. And they were actually told by their employer, like, what? You went to that high school? How did you get here? Like, like they, they mm, like yeah. the employer is actually shocked that somebody could grow up in in this area of Queens or go to this public school and actually go to like um, you know a, a decent university and actually work their way up to banking. Like the employer is mm. actually shocked, yeah. and it kind of shows you how far away from being a meritocracy the United States really is. Whereas. I would argue from what you're telling me, and, and again, I, I know that you're speaking about a very specific mm -hmm. province, that Canada believes that everyone should at least read at a sixth or seventh grade reading level, and that there is there is this idea that with enough elbow grease and with enough work, you everyone can go to you know university if they want to if they choose. Yeah, like I think a big part of that is the national and provincial funding for post secondary education that um, it's, first of all, tuition levels are a fraction of what they are in the States. That's the first thing. But then the government will also give you um, an interest-free loan, basically, for the entirety of your studying career. Um, and then once you graduated, you have six months to start, you know, to begin your repayment plan. So it's just extremely accessible. Um, I mean, I'm sure there are lots of people who would disagree with me saying it should be even more accessible. But if you really lay out a solid financial plan, you go, I'm going to take out this much from, you know, the province, take out this much from the federal funding and grants and loans. Um, and then, you know, I spend this amount of years working, I should be able to pay off my loan after obtaining a university degree. Like it takes work, but it, it's there for you. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest difference, because what I'm gathering from you is that that's not what happens. I mean, universities here are pretty prohibitive in, in terms of how expensive they are. Um, mm -hmm. If you go to a private school, I, again, even for my university, I went to a public college and we could argue that that's less prestigious. But yeah. nonetheless, I, I, I was 
pretty poor. So I just had to mm-hmm. go with wherever would take me and so forth. And I, I like to also just learn on my own. So mm-hmm. I think that kind of helps. Like if you're just curious and you, if you have a good library card, the things you can learn, Daniel. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I think that, you know, in, in, in the States, college is very expensive. If you go to a private, if you go to a public and you get a scholarship or, you know, there are some public schools that if you're really below the poverty line, you can go to school for free or with a lot of enhanced uh, financial aid. So we're starting to figure that out. But what, what I think it even beyond the university system, like I, I believe no matter how perfect the education system is, not everyone is going to turn out to be a university graduate. Yes. Yeah. But what I like about the Canadian model is that if you go down the vocational track, there's still sort of an egalitarian nature of Canada that says, even if you're a farmer, even if you're fixing cars, we're going to make sure that you can read the newspaper at a seventh grade reading level and have a, a, a basic understanding of politics, a basic understanding of laws, a basic understanding of science and so forth. Mm-hmm. And that's I think beyond the university question, I think the most important thing is having an education at the very least is egalitarian, where the working class person can talk to the university educated person and they can actually hold down a conversation together. Yeah, because up until grade eight, functionally speaking, everyone's public education is the same. Yeah. Maybe in grade seven, eight, there's a there's a gifted thing, maybe. But I think I'm comfortable saying this across Canada that Grade one to grade eight, everybody pretty much gets the same opportunities, generally speaking. I'm, I'm so cautious about saying this because I just came out of teacher's college where we focus so much on the inequities of the public school system. And there are a lot, but I think we have to make sure that we're taking things into perspective here and really zooming out and looking at the rest of the world. Like Ontario has, in my estimation, in the estimation of a number of my instructors, one of the best public school systems in the world for a number of reasons. We still... And, Yes, we are very critical of it, but I think that's part of the reason why it is so good because we're constantly looking at, well, what's not quite even or fair or equal about this? And so I guess that doesn't happen in the States nearly as much um, in terms of being, well, I'm sure lots of people are critical of the American system, um, but like, I'm trying to figure out what it is, you know, just talking with you and realizing, you know, wow, I am really lucky. <laughs> like the things that you're saying are like, this is appalling. Like, I can't <laughs> believe that this, this is something that's just, you know, common, common knowledge. So I think in the States, one of the biggest fallacies is that it's just a money, money, money issue. Like if mm-hmm. we just, if we just dump a dump truck of money into the schools, it will get better. And like, like don't get me wrong, man. It would help, but I, yeah, I, I would love, I would love to see kids each having their own laptops and, and mm-hmm. swimming pools, like swimming pools across, across the public schools, if need be, you know, I'm all for that. And I, I think there is a, a, a monetary obligation there, but I think the expectation thing is really what it comes down. I to. think it's a cultural value. Yeah, thing, it's a cul- you know? it's a cultural values thing, in the sense because you have you know on on the um, on the flip side of things you have people that let's say grew up in communist countries or former communist countries and they have almost no resources at all. Mm-hmm. They they got like they grew up with like basic chalkboards. They had textbooks written in the '60s and whatnot, and. They still had, though, like if you speak to people from the Eastern Bloc, they still had a high value of education. Mm-hmm. Their teachers yeah. were revered. They, they were yeah. respected. You would stand up and, and bow to the teacher or you would say, good, e- good, good morning, sir. Mm-hmm. And there was still like a high expert, like no matter what your social class was in these Eastern European countries with all their lack of resources, they still believe that every citizen needed to be educated and needed to learn at a very, very high level. You know, even, even my own girl, you know, my girlfriends from China and the level of math that they do in middle school is, is equivalent to some of our college classes for some, you know, and, and like, is it that they had so much money? Did they have dump trucks of money coming in? No, it's just, it's a high, it's a high expectation of human life. Yeah, I have this thought occurring to me right now that I've never thought of before. I wonder in all of these countries that we're referring to where education is still valued very highly, many East Asian countries, many Eastern European countries, um, in order to move up the social ladder, you needed to be educated. That was a requirement. Like you had to 
do well in school in order to make a lot of money in, in these countries that were less developed. But in the States, that story doesn't necessarily work anymore. You don't have to have a university doctorate to be famous and make a lot of money. Maybe that's ingrained in part of the American psyche that, you know what, I can be a millionaire. Uh, Steve Jobs dropped out of college. Bill Gates dropped out of college. Yeah, um, but that's, I don't need it. that's a misleading story, though, because I've, mm-hmm. I've looked at the data on this. And mm-hmm. in America, we tend to celebrate college dropouts and outliers and celebrities and people who made a fortune through unconventional means. Yeah. But if you actually get down to the nitty gritty of the data, if you have a university degree, especially a STEM university mm-hmm. degree in one of the hard sciences, you are going to make so much more money than just a high school graduate. So yeah. I, I would say that we in the United States are celebrating outliers. And we're yeah. saying that, we're saying that those outliers are the norm and the, those pathways are completely okay and 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 and, you know uh, people will always omit the fact that it's like bill gates dropped out of harvard yeah mark zuckerberg (laughs) dropped out of harvard like these guys had flawless sat like they they Mm. they each got like flawless sat scores and so forth we're dealing with super level geniuses and these Mm. people are true blue outliers and i think i think the story is is that yes you do have some youtube celebrity but if you walk into an affluent area, Daniel, in, 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 in America, I guarantee you everyone in that affluent area, most of them at least, have bachelor's, master's, and PhDs, and mm-hmm. law professional degrees, surgeons, a lot of surgeons over here. Like That's really the name of the game. So I think we're, mm-hmm. we're basically deluding ourselves. Yeah, that's what I think that the, you know, the, the, that image has seduced so many people. And that maybe that's part of the reason why the education system isn't as valued as much. Yeah. Or, you know, I, I we, we could go deep state conspiracy theory. Let's, here, you know what, I have an if idea. If we want, but we can maybe save it because no, that's a whole Daniel, other rabbit I, hole. I, I, think, I think we need to have another, con- let's table that for another podcast, my friend. Sure. I think that's a great idea. Daniel, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Oh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I look forward to the next one. This concludes the 55th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.